My name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible. We're in a series called What to Do When the World Falls Apart. What to Do When the World Falls Apart. And it's a focus in on the people that were exiled from the Old Testament nation of Israel, where God had set up a people to declare his greatness, right? He establishes this people group in Israel. He calls them out of slavery. And he says, now that I've saved you, I want you to honor my name with the way that you live. But they continued to rebel. And he said, okay, well, I'm gonna punish you. I'm gonna scatter you. I'm gonna humble you so that you can learn all over again to not take pride in yourself, but to take pride in me and in my grace for you. And so in the exile, we see people learning to live in a world where everything's turned upside down. They've been taken from their home and sent to this faraway place where God is not honored. And in that, they're learning uh, more, more perfectly to depend on God. And so we see in the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see this uh, living out of wisdom literature. We see this living out of faith in a very difficult time. And this is so important for us because the New Testament says we're exiles. We're not in our true home. This, this world is not our true home. Our true home is heaven where everything will be made right. And that's what we long for. But right now we're living as ambassadors. We're living as ambassadors in a broken world, living as exiles. So this week we've got a great story from Daniel chapter four. If you want to turn to Daniel chapter four and we're calling it Grace for the Proud. Grace for the Proud. Daniel chapter four, what we see is we see the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, as Lizzie just read about, and then we see the humility of Nebuchadnezzar, where he learns to show that God is the true king. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve humbling, and yet God gives us grace. God gives us forgiveness. And so just to define terms, humility is this realization of how small and how weak we really are before a holy and perfect God. Pride is thinking that we are great in and of ourselves. Grace is God's unmerited favor. He gives us kindness even though we deserve judgment. So three key phrases or three key words we're going to use again and again. Grace, pride, humility. We're all proud. We all think that we can be our own gods. We all think that we can do life on our own. And we need grace from God to humble us and to show us that he is the true king. There's a story of a leader in the New Testament, a Jewish leader who was very proud. He was very strong. He was proud of his ethnic purity. He was proud of his devotion to the law. He was proud of his righteousness. He was proud of his strict opposition to Jesus' followers because he felt like they were walking down the wrong path. But God showed grace to him by humbling him, by knocking him to the ground, by bringing him low, by blinding him. And that leader, he was named Paul, sometimes called Saul, he became one of the greatest leaders in the Christian church because he'd been humbled. You see, being humbled by God is a, is a form of grace. And so it's really important that we understand that as we look at Nebuchadnezzar, it'd be easy to say, wow, look at Nebuchadnezzar. He's this disgusting world leader who's such a narcissist and he's so proud. What we want to do is we want to look at our own hearts. We want to recognize that tendency in every 
human heart to be a proud leader. As a matter of fact, as we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, your mind's probably going to go to this terrible narcissistic boss that you used to work for, or this terrible other narcissistic leader that was so proud, or you might be thinking about uh, great political leaders that we have that are so proud. What I want you to do is to kind of calm down that accusatory voice in your head that's pointing out at other proud people, and I want you to look inwards. I want you and me to examine the pride in our own hearts. So we're going to start by reading Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read the beginning part of Daniel chapter 4 just to get us started. What the, the way that the chapter is, is uh, structured is we've got this hymn by Nebuchadnezzar where he sings of God's greatness and then he tells how he got there, right? He didn't start off singing of God's greatness. He started off singing about his own greatness just like you and I. But in this chapter, chapter 4, we'll see him singing of God's greatness. Chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to to generation. So it opens with a hymn. That's how this chapter will end. It'll come back again to a, a hymn, a song of praise, where Nebuchadnezzar praises God for his greatness, for his kingship. Um, I want to read one more verse to you. This is a repeated verse that's going to show up again and again throughout our stories today. This is verse 17. If you look at verse 17, about halfway down, it says, Know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Sets it over, sets over it the lowliest of men. It's a really important phrase. It's repeated three times. Know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Gives it to whom he wants. Here's a crazy idea that I don't think we're completely in touch with as modern Americans. God being absolutely in charge is a form of grace and sweetness to those who love God. It's terror to those of us who are in rebellion against God. It's terror to those of us who want to be our own gods. But when we've humbled ourselves and when we recognize his grace to us, we can then praise that he is actually king. He's actually in control of the universe. I want to read a little quote about pride from C.S. Lewis in the book Mere Christianity. And he talks about how this pride that we as human beings have, trying to be our own gods and not leaning on God, not trusting God to lead us, how that infects everything. It's messed up everything in our society, right? And this whole series, what to do when the world falls apart. I mean, we started looking at Daniel and what it means to live as an exile because we all just feel it. We feel like our society, our world is just more broken than in other times that we can remember in our lifetimes. It's just, just more gross, more falling apart. And Lewis, in this book, talks about, you know, we got there, we got there by not trusting God and instead trusting ourselves. We got there through pride. So here's what Lewis says. He says, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, really talking about Adam and Eve, our remote ancestors, was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, 
poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us just as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. He's the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. Do you hear that? We're, we're pushing back against the actual design of the universe. We, we can't function properly apart from God. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such thing. That is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions are devised. But each time something goes wrong, some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top. And it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It's a technical term for it stops working. It seems to start up all right, and it runs a few yards, and then it breaks down. They're trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has done to us humans. I know that was a little longer than I said. I said it was a short quote. That was kind of a long quote, wasn't it? But this book is so helpful. C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, is so helpful in understanding pride and how we, we try to live apart from God, but it, it doesn't work. We try to be our own gods. That's really the essence of what pride is, is exalting ourselves, saying, I am big enough to be God. I'm big enough to control my universe. Instead of humbling ourselves and saying, God, only you can lead me. I trust you. I don't trust myself. And so we've got this fantastic story with Nebuchadnezzar where we see this lived out. We see it fleshed out. We see someone who was arguably the strongest and greatest man there was in the world at that time. And so he's saying, look at how great I am, right? But he's still not enough. Even the greatest is not enough. Similar lessons we saw when we studied Ecclesiastes a couple of years ago. King Solomon was given supernatural wisdom from God. He had great riches. He had great wealth. He had great power. And yet he realized it's, it's not enough. This is this incredible thing you realize when you study the lives of really great people, people who have accomplished a lot. You see this aching, gnawing emptiness inside them. And that's the story that we see in Nebuchadnezzar. But again, please focus. Don't say, yeah, this is about those other bad people that have caused me problems in my life. I want you to think about your own heart. Now, if you are particularly being hurt by proud people right now, know that I'm praying for you, and I want to give you a psalm that I think could be a gift to you in that, and that's Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is, is therapy for when we are being injured and hurt by those who are proud. It reminds us to consider that God really is king, and it helps us to deal with the proud that are hurting us. But today, with this story, I want us to think about how are we proud? How are we like little Nebuchadnezzars walking around saying, look at, look at what I've done? So let me pray for us, and then we'll unpack this in more detail. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would meet us here. We pray that this would be a supernatural act, that you would calm our hearts, that you would calm our defenses, that you would allow us to be open-minded to who you are and to receive truth from you, God, that your spirit would meet us here. Help us, God. We confess our neediness 
of you. We confess, God, that we are individuals that are humbled before you, that you are king and we are not. We confess, Lord, as a nation that we have been proud and that you are humbling us and you are teaching us that we need you. God, will you help us? God, will you restore us? God, will you save us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So again, I I wanted us to define the key terms. Pride is, look at how great I am, right? Humility is is kind of a lowering. It's most translations, Greek, Hebrew, most versions of the word are an actual physical lowering, you know, like kneeling, smallness, humbleness, weakness. Um, It's saying, I'm small, but God is great. And this really fits in the flow of where the stories have been going, right? We've had these visions of great statues, and then we had Nebuchadnezzar setting up this great statue, and last week we talked about the Tower of Babel and this story of humanity trying to reach up to the heavens. And this is the complete opposite of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is humanity cannot reach up to the heavens, but God reaches down to us. That's the beautiful picture. And so, again, pride is exalting myself. Humility is humbling myself. And the gift of God's grace is that he comes down to us. God loves, saves, and forgives the lowly, the humble. And so grace is a gift that God gives us that we don't deserve. It's not something we earn by being smart enough to figure God out. It's not something we earn by being better than our neighbors. It's not something we earn by the political affiliation or club that we belong to. But grace is a free gift because God is kind and loving and he loves to give what we don't deserve. And so there are three ways that we can receive grace that we see modeled in this story. Three ways that God calls out to us. Three graces that he gives to us. One is the grace of internal alarms. We're going to see this unfold in the Nebuchadnezzar story because he's going to have dreams And dreams, as most of us know, dreams are really a manifestation of what's deep down inside of our heads, right? Dreams are manifestations of our subconscious thought. And we have this idea throughout Scripture that subconsciously we suppress it. We try to shut it up, but subconsciously we know God is there. And that's a grace that he's given to us. He's hardwired us to know he exists, to see him in creation. So the first grace is the grace of internal alarms. We have these little bells going off internally. We know God is there. We need to do something about it. That's a grace that God has given to us. Are you going to respond to that grace? The second grace that we see in the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his pride and humility is the grace of spoken warnings. The grace of spoken warnings. Sometimes God brings someone wise to you that says, hey, watch out. You're you're headed for danger. I'm worried about you, right? And this is most explicit in Scripture itself. Scripture is a spoken warning that God has given to us. That's a grace. That's a, whoa, slow down. You're headed for disaster. So we we are given the grace of spoken warnings. And then the final grace is the hardest to see as grace, and that's the grace of complete humiliation. The grace of complete humiliation. Sometimes we're like Nebuchadnezzar, and we ignore the internal alarms, We ignore the spoken warnings, and and we don't really see grace until we've been completely humiliated, completely broken and floored. And we'll see that play out in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So first grace is the grace of internal alarms. We'll see this in verses 4 through 18. Uh, Starting in verse 4, 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's starting to tell his story now. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies, or this is like fantasies or images, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. That's where I get the key idea of internal alarms here. It alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretations. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. And I was going to explain some of what he saw in his dream. This was the internal alarms that were going off in his head. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heaven. Again, we have this imagery of a great reaching up towards the heavens. So this tree reached to the heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Verse 12, its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, this is an angel, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruits. Let the beasts Flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 17, one of three repetitions throughout this section. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It's repeated over and over again. This is the grace of God. The grace of God is that God is actually king of the universe and we are not. Every time we reach up to the heavens and try to make ourselves king, everything breaks Everything goes sideways. Know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me. Now, this is kind of a nuanced argument, so so follow me for a second here. The main point is that we need to receive the grace of internal alarms. God gives us internal alarms our, our conscience might be bothered by our sin. Our subconscious might be reminded of the reality of God. Romans chapter 1 says very clearly that all human beings know that God exists. We walk outside, we know He's real. And we either openly acknowledge it or we suppress the truth, is the language that Romans 1 says. So Scripture is clear. We all intuitively, internally, subconsciously, in our own conscience, whatever word you want to know or want to use, we all know that God is there. And yet we ignore it. Romans 1 says we suppress that truth. 
we push it away. Why? Because we want to be God. And we just replay the same sin of Adam and Eve. We reach out for the fruit. We say, no, I want the fruit, but I don't want you, God. I want to be king. I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. I want to be the one who decides what's right and what's wrong. We all do this. So we've got Nebuchadnezzar knowing the reality that he's guilty before God and ignoring it. Now here's the little nuanced part of this argument is that most scholars look at this dream and say, Nebuchadnezzar probably knew what the dream meant, right? Especially when you read ancient Mesopotamian literature. Man, I bought two like thousand page books of ancient Mesopotamian literature. I was like, all right, I need to you know, bone up on this stuff, learn a little bit more. That stuff is hard to read, okay? <laughs> Very hard to understand. But the scholars that know Akkadian and Aramaic and Hebrew and all this stuff, that read all this stuff in the original language, these, these scholars say, it's pretty obvious. The meaning of the dream is pretty obvious, right? There's some real clear symbolism here. He's calling in all the enchanters and Chaldeans. He's calling in Daniel because he doesn't want to deal with what he already knows is true. Have you ever done that? Like, I know God is calling me to repent and turn from the sin. I know what I'll do. I'll ask a bunch of friends to get their advice. Maybe they can tell me not to repent. Have you ever been in that situation? I can find the right counselor. This is one of the most frustrating things of being a pastor is when you're talking to someone and you know they've been shopping counselors, right? They're like, well, the last three people told me I should turn from sin and trust Jesus. So I'm coming to you to try to get another answer. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. I'm going to give you the same answer. We're all given this grace of these internal alarms. Call it your subconscious thoughts. Call it your tender conscience before God. Whatever it is, we know He's there. We know He's there. God says that as we ignore these alarms, He gives us over to our sin. He lets our sin break us. Romans 1 is it's pretty terrifying. Romans 1 talks about this, these obvious sins that then result of sexual immorality, but it also includes the religious sins of gossip and slander. All human sins, whether you're religious or whether you're non-religious, they all come from the same root. It's this pride of suppressing the truth that God is God. It's this pride of saying, I can be God and I can decide what's right and wrong in my universe. I grabbed a picture here of someone tossing and turning in their dreams. Uh, as modern people, we're not as in touch with our dreams. Most of you probably have not done a lot of dream interpretation. You probably haven't gone to dream interpretation school like Daniel did and all the Chaldeans and all the, the people of that time. But you know what it's like to be anxious, right? You may not be able to make sense of your dreams, but you know what it's like to be bothered. You, you know what it's like to wake up in a cold sweat, knowing that you're going in the wrong direction. And that is a grace. It feels terrible. Nobody wants to wake up in a cold sweat, right? It feels awful, but it's a grace that God is giving to you, this internal alarm that something is broken. As C.S. Lewis said, it's like you're running the engine on something other than the gasoline it was made to run on. And alarms are going off. It's coughing. It's, it's sputtering. Are you going to, to listen to those alarms? Are you going to suppress the truth? And God says that the wrath that he pours out on us is actually giving us over to our own kingship, letting us go down that road. That's what it says in Romans 1. It says the wrath of God is poured out on us by giving us over to our desires, by letting us be king, 
and letting us make a mess of it all. So the question is, what are we going to do? As we hear these internal alarms, are we going to respond or not? Now, some would argue God hasn't made himself clear. I'm not sure uh, if he's really there. Okay, well, let's, let's deal with that. Here, here's an argument from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer says, if you just were to carry a little, you know, discreet tape recorder, we shouldn't say tape, right? A digital recorder around your neck, right? We'll say a digital recorder. If you would just carry a little voice recorder around your neck, say for your entire life, I know that's hard to do, but let's say you carry one your entire life and then you come to the judgment at the end of your life and what if you were just judged by the value statements that you made? Would you pass? What if you were not judged by some external holy God and his perfect righteousness? You were just judged by your own value statements. Schaefer says, and I would argue, we can't even pass that test. We all intuitively know that the world is glorious. We all intuitively know that the world is broken. We all know in our own consciences that that we as human beings are glorious. We have great potential to do what's right and good and just and to love people and to stand up for, for the good in society. And yet we also know that's just generally not what human beings do. These internal alarms should drive us to humble ourselves before God. They should drive us to say, God, I need you. God, I need you. Help me. They shouldn't drive us to shop counselors like Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Say, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. I want to hear some sort of explanation where I can get out of this problem of anxiety I'm dealing with, but I don't have to actually submit to the God of the universe. That, that's really what most of us are looking for. We're called on to, to turn, to turn and to trust in God instead of trusting in ourselves. The next point is that God gives us the grace of spoken warnings. The grace of spoken warnings. Now, just to clarify um, Daniel was a prophet. God spoke through Daniel directly to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but we have this bound book, a collection of 66 books of all the prophets and apostles of God. So we have even more than Nebuchadnezzar had, right? And so I'm going to say spoken warnings, God's words spoken to us comes through prophets like Daniel. Here's the beautiful thing. We have even more than that. We have this entire book so the big question for us to ask is, am I paying attention? Am I receiving the grace of the spoken warnings of God? We've talked about this a few times before, but theologians generally divide two ways that God speaks to us, two categories of revelation. There's the general revelation of this world that we see and we just know that God is there. That's what Romans 1 is talking about, right? Right? We intuitively know God's existence. We know his divine power. We can see it in creation. That's general revelation, the general speech of God. And then we've got special revelation, the specific words of God given through his prophets and apostles. We bind those books together and we call that the Holy Bible. What does that mean? Holy Bible means sacred book. We're saying there are a lot of great books out there. A lot of great books out there that can teach us good things because all people are made in the image of God. And so all human beings have, you know, insight into the world that God's made. But this is a special book. This is a holy book, a holy Bible, sacred scripture, where we believe God specifically is speaking to us through this. The way that John Calvin described it is he said, 
we can see God in the world as we just look with our own eyes. But then to really be able to understand it, we need to put on our glasses, right? This makes a lot more sense to me now that I'm pushing 50. We put on our glasses, and our glasses are the Word of God that helps us to actually read the world that God has made. So we can see truth out there in the world that God has made, but it can be kind of fuzzy, right? Our, uh, our own rebellion, our own pride kind of makes it fuzzy, makes it hard for us to read, but when we, when we wear Scripture like glasses, it enables us to read the world that God has made. So we're to receive the grace of spoken warning. Start in verse 19 with the story again. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. Uh, Most scholars here point that this means that Daniel was actually upset, not just because he might have his head chopped off, but he was actually upset because he had care and concern for the king, because he says, oh, I wish this is something that was going to happen to your enemies. And then later on, we see him preaching a gospel of repentance to the king as well. These are both forms of love that Daniel's expressing. So Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretations for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it's you. The tree in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, is you. The tree is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, an angel, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. Here it is. Here's the spoken warning of God. Are you ready? Verse 25, um, it is a, or verse 24, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You recognize the echo there? That's the echo of verse 17. As I said before, this is repeated throughout the word. Know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. See that warning at the end? So spoken warning is, you are this tree. But there's built into that the possibility of restoration in the way that the dream unfolds. And he says, know then that there's a possibility that that things will be okay. Know that there's this option of restoration. He says it's just going to be for seven periods. We're not sure how long those seven periods are. Uh, It's either seven weeks, seven months, seven seasons, seven years. I would lean more towards the longer period of time because it says when this happened to him that his hair got all matted and his 
nails grew out like long claws, so it's probably seven years or seven seasons. Um, but he says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. This is his message of repentance. His call to the king to hear and receive the grace of the spoken warning. Here's my message. Here's my counsel. Break off your sins. Break off your sins. How do we say that? We often say turn from your sins. Repent of your sins. What does that mean? That doesn't mean be perfect and then God will be pleased with you. Because scripture is really clear that none of us can do that. What it means is stop trusting in your sins and start trusting in God. It means switch the object of your faith. Right now, the object of your faith or my faith might be in our own strength, in our addiction, this thing that we love, this false idol. And the call from Scripture is turn from that and trust in God. Trust that He's really the only solution. Trust that He's really the fuel that your engine is made to run on. So he tells him, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This reminds me of the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says this in Luke 3 and Matthew 3. He's like, turn, repent from your sins and bear fruits in keeping with repentance, right? That's the call of John the Baptist. He says, if you really are sorry for your sin, then start living in a new way. Start following God and obeying what he tells you to do. Again, we have to be clear. The scripture challenges us to stop doing bad and start doing right. That's what we should do. Stop doing bad stuff. If you're doing bad stuff, I'm not telling you to keep doing it. Stop it and do what's right. That's what God calls us to do. But we can only be saved by our trust in him. The the phrase for this in the New Testament is faith, belief. I trust in God. Only your mercy can save me. Only your forgiveness can save me. One of the best summaries of this is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It makes it very clear that we're not saved by any works that we do. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. By trusting in Jesus, taking your sins upon himself, giving you his resurrection life, that's how you're saved. And then when we are really saved, when we genuinely trust in God, we begin following him. And that looks like then new ways of living. We begin walking in a new direction. We begin doing things like Daniel has described here, practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed. This lines up perfectly with what James says. He says, what is true religion? It's well, it's keeping yourself unstained from the world and taking care of orphans and widows in their distress, right? It's fascinating in the great division of our society now. Uh, We have a culture that says often, not all the time, right? Christians should say both, but often we have people in our culture say, no, true righteousness is just taking care of those who are weak and oppressed, but there's no actual moral demands made on us because we're, you know, we're modern cool people and we get to do whatever we want, right? And then more conservative culture says, no, we've got to keep these moral demands, but we're less sure about taking care of the oppressed. In in Christianity, we're, we're called to both, right? Called to live by a moral code, to obey the laws of God, And we're called to care for the weak. Both sides, if you will, are brought together here in Daniel as well as in James. Now, obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. But here he's saying, if you really want to see transformation in your life, trust God, stop trusting your sins, and start practicing righteousness. 
Start caring for those who are weak. Start caring for the, pre- the oppressed. Start using your power, O King, to do what's right. My question for you is, are we going to listen? Nebuchadnezzar does not listen. I grabbed a picture of uh, a kid covering their ears. Has this ever happened to you? You're trying to give instructions to your kids. They don't want to hear what you have to say. So they cover their ears. No, I'm not listening to you. I don't want to hear it, right? And that's what we do to God all the time. God gives us his word and we cover our ears. We say, no, I'd rather watch a movie. No, I'd rather scroll through social media, right? No, I'd rather just go get a few drinks, but I don't, I don't want to listen to your word, God. We should heed his warnings. He gives us very specific warnings, spoken warnings in his word. And we are so spoiled, right? I mean, here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's got a prophet of God that works for him. That's pretty cool, right? We might think, yeah, that'd be great to have my own personal prophet of God. But we've got all the prophets of God here, right? We've got all of his word bound together. It's like an embarrassment of riches. We have so much and so many great English translations. We can hear God speaking to us. We can receive his word or we can just cover our ears and say, no, I don't want to hear it. Hebrews 12.25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The author to the Hebrews is saying, how much more scary was it in the Old Testament to reject these Old Testament prophets' warnings, to reject the voice of God that came down on Mount Sinai? How much worse would it be then to reject the voice who warns us from heaven, God himself in the person of Christ? So what are some ways we can listen? Instead of rejecting the grace of spoken warnings, well, read Scripture. Listen to it. Set aside time. Set aside time in the morning if you're a morning person. Set aside time at night if you're a night person. Carve out time. And this is really important. Uh, One of our pastors, Chris Webster, was saying this in one of our discussions a couple of months ago. You're really not going to make room for Scripture unless you take away the room that other things are occupying, right? We live such full lives. We have so many voices coming into our ears, coming into our heads. You're going to have to Create some boundaries and push those things aside if you're ever going to listen to what Scripture says. I dare you to make time for Scripture. Carve out time to read it, to memorize it, to meditate it, to listen to it. I find that I learn Scripture the best when I listen. Um, Maybe that's because my eyes are getting weaker in my old age. I don't know. I I think I process better listening. I don't know what it's like for you. For some of you, it might be meditation, just like reading the same chapter over and over and chewing on it and memorizing it. But we need to ingest and receive the warnings that God gives us in Scripture. Ask friends, too, to come around you and speak these spoken warnings. The way God has wired us, we need people. That's one of the most difficult things about this whole COVID corona thing is the isolation we've been living in. Connect with human beings, whether that be outside picnic table meetings or phone meetings or whatever it is that works for you that's safe in your situation, You need to have friends who, like Daniel, will be alarmed when your life is falling apart. They care enough to be alarmed, and they care enough to speak the truth. Do you have friends like that, that are alarmed when you're trashing your life and will speak the truth to you? 
You need to invite friends like that into your life. Invite them to speak into what they see. But also be that kind of friend. Are you that kind of friend for anybody? We have this thing we, we put up on our join a small group page, three by five groups. You don't need to wait for a group that meets at a certain time at the church or uh, in someone's home. You can create a group of just two or three people. You meet together. We put these cards online. We just share what's going on in your life. You read some scripture. You share what you're learning from it. You pray for each other. It's really that simple. Find friends that will speak into your life and be that kind of friend that will speak into other people's lives. This is a way for us to continue humbling ourselves before God. Remember uh, the, the image? We can either exalt ourselves and say, look at me, I'm so great, I know more than God. Or we can humble ourselves and listen to his word and say, God, I need you to teach me. I need you to direct me. I need you to guide me. Now, the last grace, as I said, this is the toughest one. This is the grace of complete humiliation. The grace of complete humiliation. And here we see the breaking of King Nebuchadnezzar. Starting in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Most secular and biblical scholars agree that Babylon was one of the greatest empires ever. It's just incredibly glorious. The cities, the palaces, everything that they'd accomplished, the hanging gardens. He's walking out on this balcony looking out over this incredible, beautiful city he's made. Probably the closest thing in human civilization to what is prophesied when the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. And it's both a garden and a city. That, that's, that's the future we're headed for, right? It's like a Garden of Eden city. That's, that's what we're headed for. Babylon's probably the closest thing we've ever seen, and Nebuchadnezzar's looking out on it and saying, look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. He's exalting himself. He's reaching up to the heavens. He's talking about how powerful And how amazing he is as a king. Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's the third repetition. You getting the idea this is a main idea of the story? God is in charge and he does what he wants. And that's grace. If, If you don't love God, if you don't see God as the forgiving God who gave himself to you in Jesus, this is a horrible idea. To let God run the universe, we don't like it at all. But if you see that God came to us in Christ, and suffered with us, and died in our place, and gives us resurrection power through faith in him, then this is a glorious statement of grace. God is king, and he rules, and he gives rule to whoever he will. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. So, What does that mean? Seven months, seven seasons, about two years, or seven years. We're not sure exactly the way the Aramaic is written. It could have been any of those three time periods. I would say it's not seven days and it's not seven weeks, 
because his hair and his nails couldn't get that long, right? But this was a long period of time, and we assume from the way the stories unfold that there was some co-regent, a son, or some administrative ruler, maybe Daniel himself helping to just hold things together. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. We have a little sidebar we need to address here. Is this mental illness, or is this just a judgment from God? Which is it? Well, if you've heard me preach much, you know I'm going to say both, right? This is mental illness. Mental illness is a real thing we need to be concerned about. Um, Some of you have considerable chemical problems, right? Some of you have considerable physical problems. Some of you have considerable problems based on sins that have been committed against you from the outside. Real evil has been committed against you. Or real terrible things have just happened in your life because the world is broken. Hurricanes, tornadoes, fires. There are things within us that we need to turn from and give back to God. And then there are things that happen to us. And what I want you to understand is sometimes we use the things that happen to us as an excuse to never turn to God. Those things are genuinely wrong. And we probably need help to heal from those. We can't just say, oh, everything's fine. I'm good. Probably a good idea to get professional help to heal from those things. But don't let those things keep you from actually turning your own heart to God. So two big ideas. Number one, yes, we are a complicated mix of physical weakness, abuse, self-inflicted stupidity, bad choices we've made, right? We're, we're a complicated spaghetti bowl mix of all of those things. But no, this does not allow us to not repent. Do you see that? Yes, bad things happened to you and those bad things were wrong and those bad things that some bad person did to you are not your fault. You need to hear that. But don't use the bad things that have happened to you or the sickness that you have as an excuse not to repent. We all need to repent. The scripture is clear. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Abusers and victims. Healthy and sick. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I grabbed a picture here of someone in the hospital. Um, We definitely believe, man, there are times to go to the hospital, right? If your arm is broken, don't just repent. But repent and go have a doctor fix your arm, okay? If you're struggling with mental illness, don't just repent, but repent and get a doctor's help, right? If you're struggling with your eating habits or exercise, right? Go see a trainer, but you also need to repent, right? Like it's okay to get physical help for physical problems. Human beings are, we're this complex web of emotional problems and physical problems and spiritual problems. And often what happens is that bad things have been done to us and we use that as an excuse to then do bad things to other people or to ignore God completely. And so I just want to encourage you to, to, to deal with the junk and get help to help you deal with the junk, but also to remember, man, I, I need to humble myself before God. I still need God. This is not an excuse to not receive the grace that God is giving me, even in this complete humiliation. We see this beautiful transition here. Um, Verse 33. So we saw that that repetition in verse 32 again. The most high rules, and he gives it to whom he will. Now verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dews of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He was 
uh, gross and nasty. There's this great famous painting by Blake of Nebuchadnezzar. I should have thrown it up. I've thrown it up before. It's just a gorgeous picture. It's a little bit bizarre, right? It shows him like crawling on the ground and his hair's all grown out. But I decided not to show it because it's still a beautiful painting, right? I think what the story is telling us here is that if you saw Nebuchadnezzar, you would have averted your eyes. You would have been like, oh, right? He had hit rock bottom, the rock bottom of rock bottoms, right? Greatest leader in history hits the lowest low in history. He just... He was in bad shape. And then it says in verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored Him who lives forever. And here's another song, which kind of matches the song at the beginning. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar is now praising God. He's speaking about how good and how great God is. And that kind of frames the story. We have the beginning of the story and the end of the story. Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. Here's the crazy thing. Verse 36, that same time my reason returned to me, For the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. God gave him back his majesty. It doesn't always work out this way, right? It doesn't always work out that when you humble yourself before God and you honor him, that you get all your stuff back. Sometimes, right? Sometimes that works out. This is what worked out for Nebuchadnezzar. My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is really interesting. Verse 37. Let's meditate on verse 37 for just a moment. Now God has got the world's greatest leader following him and giving honor to him. And what did that produce in world history? Perfect utopia, right? All the world's problems were solved. Right there. Isn't that what happened? Everything was better now. Because now we finally had a leader in the palace that was honoring God. You see that? I'm being a little facetious here. Nebuchadnezzar really did turn to God and the world really did continue to be broken. You see that? It's kind of sad. I don't want to be depressing. I don't want to end there. So let's go back to my favorite part of the story. And that is in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Let's talk about what's happening there. This is kind of an echo, or later on, this is echoed in the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? He'd rebelled against his father and he'd lost everything, and he's tending pigs, which in Jewish culture is the lowest of the low, the the rock bottom of rock bottoms, and he actually wants to eat the pig slop. He's actually seeing that the pig slop looks good to him, and he starts to desire it. He recognizes, you know what? It would be better to humble myself and go back to my father's house and say, I don't deserve to be a son, but can I at least be a hired hand in your house? Can I have some scraps? He goes back humbling himself and begging for forgiveness. And in that story, it says that he also came to his senses. 
That's the picture we have here of Nebuchadnezzar realizing, looking to heaven, God is God and I am not. When we actually recognize that God is God and we are not God, we come to our senses. It transforms us. It changes us. It gives us reason. It helps us to think clearly. My question for you is, are you continuing to fight God? Are you continuing to to try to be the king of your own story? Or have you come to your senses? Are you looking up to heaven saying, God, I need you? That's ultimately what it means to be a follower of Christ, is to be someone who admits that they can't save themselves, but only God can save them. One of the greatest misunderstandings in our, in our culture about what Christianity is, is the thought that Christianity is a gathering of the good people, and then all the bad people are out there. But it's, it's exactly the opposite. Christianity is a gathering of people who confess that we cannot save ourselves, and that we need Jesus. So God is a God who gives grace to the proud. Not just to the proud bad guys out there, but to us. When we are proud, he gives grace to us. Are you going to listen to his warnings? Are you going to listen to the internal alarms that he gives you in your own subconscious? Are you going to listen to the spoken warnings that he gives in his word? And are you going to listen when you're undergoing complete humiliation? When everything is broken, will you call out to him for help? He's a God who will help you. It's fascinating to compare. Nebuchadnezzar is often called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords here in Daniel and in other historic documents. But we know that Jesus Christ is the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Nebuchadnezzar is the king who continues to reach up to the heavens. But Philippians 2 says that Jesus Christ is the God who came down from heaven to earth. Nebuchadnezzar was always grasping For power, he was always full of himself. He was always trying to exalt his own name. Philippians 2 says that Jesus Christ is one who did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself, humbled himself as a man, lived in our place, died in our place, gives us life if we'll humble ourselves and call out to him. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace in Jesus. We thank you for these stories that challenge us. And God, we confess our own broken lives. Again, we confess as a nation, we are broken and we need you. We confess as individual people, we are broken and we need you. And we praise you, God, because we know that you are gracious. You prove that in Jesus, and so we call out to you with joy, knowing that you give grace to the proud. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name.